Okay. Here we go. Come on, you're doing oh. it for the gays and the days. Do it. Hello and welcome to Emerald Roots, official podcast of the Irish Family History Centre and the place to find great chats on all things Irish, family and history. I'm Caitlin Bain and this podcast is for anyone who's ever wondered, am I Irish? What does Guinness really taste like? Who's your one? Hello everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Emerald Roots. I'm Caitlin Bain and I'm here with my co-host for this podcast, Kaylee and Fiona. Hey. Hello. So, we're in June. Yes. Yes. We know what that means. Pride. Pride. Go Pride. <laughs> we're celebrating LGBTQ plus Irish diaspora, Irish people, Irishness. Yes. Of which there is lots and lots and lots. Yes, yes, exactly. But we do have another reason to celebrate. Yes. Yes. This month yes. is the 30th anniversary for the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Ireland. <laughs> in our lifetimes, guys. Well, <laughs> just about, just about. <laughs> yes, totally in our lifetimes. For all of us. Some of our lifetimes. In <laughs> Okay, well, let's wind it back a little bit, guys. Mm -hmm. So in 1533... Just back a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. Weave it, weave it. Mm -hmm. The Tudor reign established the Buggery Act. Mm. The punishment was death, right? Now, a bishop in the 17th century realised that this was never actually enacted in Ireland. Oh. And so retroactively oh, really? applied it to Ireland, apparently. Oh. Apparently. Oh. Allegedly. Uh, <laughs> allegedly. We don't know what they were doing in the meantime, yeah. but definitely by Having the 17th century, <laughs> Ireland was under that same remit. Mm. And then in 1861, they amended it from sodomy to gross indecency mm. and they changed the punishment uh, from death to two years imprisonment with hard labour. So that was established throughout the whole of the UK, so Ireland as well. Mm. In 1885, they amended that again to include any homosexual act between males, even when there were no witnesses. This is actually what got Oscar Wilde in the end, yeah. were letters mm. expressing these intentions. Yeah. And yeah. it was enough to convict, basically. Who know a writer would get caught yeah. <laughs> writing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, lived and died by the pen, by unfortunately. The pen. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, however, Ireland was one of the last countries in Europe to decriminalise homosexuality with the reform only happening in 1993. And that yeah. is why we're celebrating the 30th anniversary. And look how far we've come, guys. <laughs> now, um, fun fact, mm -hmm. I have absolutely no idea how true this is. Okay. But apparently, homosexual, as we understand it, relationships or marriages were actually technically legal under Brehan law. Really? You know what? I would not Apparently. be surprised. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm. I wouldn't be Because you know what? I was actually just going to ask you that when we were talking about Henry VIII enacting mm. the laws and them forgetting to kind of do them here in Ireland at certain points because mm. so many of our... Now, obviously, I know it's a big conversation of how liberal really were the Breton laws. Are we playing them up too much? But they were. Uh, the age of consent under the Breton laws, or the, it was called the age of choice, mm. was 14. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Which was actually very... That's actually very high for a lot yeah. of countries at yeah. that time. Yeah, yeah. very high. That's, and to have an age of 12th choice. century. 
yeah, yeah. is extremely choice liberal. Being choice being the word. word. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Okay, right. so do you know what? Even though we don't know for sure, I would not be surprised if that was the case and if that actually was yeah. something that happened in, in Ireland under Brown yeah. Bob. And the thing that I think we struggle with a lot with looking at ancient Ireland and Celtic civilizations mm. is that all of our writings mm. are from the Catholic Church. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons that you had the Synod of Whitby in the 7th century was about canon law becoming more important yeah. than Brehon law. Yeah. And Rome always struggled to keep full control of mm. the church in Ireland. The church yeah. in Ireland was always a little bit more independent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons that when Dermot McMurrah in 1169 went to Henry II of England and said, can you help me? Mm. Give me some soldiers. And Henry II went to the Pope, who was the only English Pope that there has ever been. <laughs> and the excuse for the Normans invading Ireland was to put the Irish church in order. Mm. Oh, yeah. We're also joined this week by our lovely front of house customer service representative, Lama Fitzsimons. Hello, everyone. Hello. (laughs) So, Lama, we are talking about the fact that it is pride, but also 30 years since the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Ireland. How does that make you feel? As a law student. <laughs> I have to mention that in somewhere they law student. Law students always have to have it known loud and clear that they're in law. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, honestly, it's shocking that it wasn't decriminalised sooner, but at least it was 30 years ago rather than being five years ago or 10 years ago. Mm. We're still seeing, even just in the last couple of days, proposals put in by Jed Nash to look at the respect of decriminalisation and the fact that so many people who were convicted previously need to have those convictions revised and that's finally been put through just in the last couple of days. Mm -hmm. And also, quite topical this month and also for the 30-year anniversary, they're finally going to bring forward legislation to ban conversion therapy in Ireland because that's still not banned. banned. I did not know that. Yeah. That is, well... Thank you for the law segment. That's the law segment, everybody. I'll try my best. So it's crazy, isn't it? Because Ireland was one of the last countries in Europe to decriminalise homosexuality. And it was actually kind of forced a little bit by the EU Courts of Justice. The EU Courts of Justice. Mm -hmm. And if we hadn't joined the EU. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, you don't know. Europe has done a lot of good work and kind of forcing modernization of a lot of laws within smaller countries around Europe and especially Ireland like even just for for women's rights for the marriage ban for rights of single parent fathers for LGBT rights there's just so many things that would have never happened or would have happened at a much slower pace if it wasn't for the European Union basically saying look this is the modern state of law this is how life should be held in like the 21st and 20th century and this is what we're going to do so it's absolutely been an amazing force for change and a very positive force for just rights of every everyday ordinary Irish citizens yeah yeah. so it all stems from the right to privacy which is your human right to privacy and that mm-hmm. is something that Mary Robinson mm-hmm was very instrumental mm-hmm. in as well. Mary Robinson being the first woman president of Ireland. Yeah. She came in in 1989. Powerhouse. Absolute powerhouse of a woman. Yeah. And I think Mary McAleese was involved. She was, As yeah. well at the time. I think she first started running against, and then she actually changed her opinion and became a powerful advocate for LGBTQ plus rights. 
and has been a, a strong voice as yeah. an ally for decades now. Yes. Yeah. She's done some huge work, but obviously she came from a very <coughs> Christian does, background. Yeah. Um, so that informed her and values. And a Northern Ireland Christian background. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. which adds another layer of. <laughs> Another layer of complexity yeah, going to things. against your family's beliefs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you? because yeah. actually the thing that's quite interesting, I suppose, and significant about Irish law and the decriminalisation of homosexuality in 1993 was that it was about equality. Mm-hmm. Equality of treatment under the law, regardless mm-hmm. of sexual orientation to all yeah. people. So for that, for example, the age of consent was a huge thing. Yes. They, Glenn, the... Um, Gay and Lesbian Equality Network, yes. Glenn, there were huge advocates behind it. And they said the having that equality in the law was pivotal. It was essential for them because it was the, I suppose, cornerstone of how they would be treated in the law going forward. Because if you look at the decriminalisation of homosexuality in the UK in 1967, it wasn't actually an equal reform. The age of consent was different. And that actually had ramifications going forward, and you can see that in Northern Ireland. Yeah, the age of consent in Northern Ireland wasn't made equal until 2000, and then it didn't actually go through until 2001, which is crazy, Mm. because that's it really shouldn't have reached the 21st century before these reforms were made completely. It's fantastic that they have been made, but it seems very late, you know. Mm. But there's Mm. been such, if you think about how the discussion has changed in Ireland since the turn of the 21st century to now you know we've made like there's so much still to be done obviously for lgbtq plus rights especially at the moment with this new wave of backlash against the trans community but Mm -hmm. we've so much more to do but we have done so much which is fantastic you know especially 2015 the thing that stands out to me is the fact that a lot of these issues with trans people they just weren't issues previously like these Mm. this wasn't an issue 10 years ago it wasn't an issue 20 years ago one of my first lectures in ucd described up until victorian times and the 19th century men wore feminine clothes they wore makeup yeah Mm -hmm. And were allowed to express Mm -hmm. a feminine side of their nature peacocking it was Exactly. Yeah. It was the Victorian yeah. era yes. mm-hmm. that put those straight laces. We are, yeah. our society is Victorian light. Yeah. Like <laughs> every, like so much of our society has just been yeah. influenced by the Victorian period. Oh yeah. The courts were more progressive in 1970 than they are today. Like yeah. within Ireland, within Europe, within America, there's a New Jersey court ruling <laughs> from the 90, 1970s which affirms someone's right to choose their own gender identity, which says that gender identity is an expression, you know, it's up to like self-expression, your own mm-hmm. personal rights. Like this is a this is a, f- a fully upheld court ruling in mm-hmm. New Jersey, America, 1970. And American courts today wouldn't uphold that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As the elder lemon in the room here, <laughs> I would have been in college in 1993. And then the referendum on um, same-sex marriage in 2015, And then you also have the abortion referendum as well. But what was fantastic to see was, you know, the home to vote. The young people taking control and responsibility for those campaigns, for those referendums. Yeah. And that's what made me go, yeah, this is the country I, this is the country I want to grow old in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because all these young people who are the future, yeah, I'm looking at you, Lana, <laughs> um, are sort of going, we are going to create the sort of country that we want. Yeah. yeah. And engaged 
informed, willing to stand up and be counted and willing to fly home mm. from where they may be living in. You know, we're speaking to the diaspora and come home and vote. And I found that hugely joyful, uplifting, mm-hmm. Agreed. promising and mm. sort of like, yep. Mm. This is this is this is good. I think that Ireland has been in this really interesting bubble of like significant radical change in a very dramatically increased speed. Yeah. Because we were so behind. Yeah. And I think that that was economically, socially, culturally, mm-hmm. you know, kind of in a lot of ways we were a emerging new country. Yeah with very little resources and with no resources the no, only yeah. natural resources that ireland has is the sea Turf. and the wind yeah. <laughs> um, we can feed over 200 oh, yeah we can feed over 200 million people yeah we can always be able to feed ourselves yeah a lot of beef yeah but that's <laughs> about as far as it goes but i think that a few things impacted ireland fundamentally and have been detrimentally beneficial for us if that's that's a wrong use of words together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well done, brain. <laughs> and significantly um, changed Ireland as mm-hmm. a people. The first is the entry into the EU. Yeah, mm. that's the main. Massively the main removed our over reliance on the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. and gave us space to grow. Yeah, and I think a confidence as well. Yeah, like an identity beyond we're not Britain. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. could be part of this. But we'd have seat. We'd have seat at the table. We'd have seat at the table. That's exactly mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah. The second thing is the age of information. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, having yeah. that spread like massively across and, and opening the world. Growth. The third one, I think, is the decline of the Catholic Church in Ireland. Yeah. yeah. And those three all kind of came together at the same time. Like if you yeah. look at Ireland, even up to 1980, 1990, you still see people kind of being sent off and, and shoved away to the likes of Mother and Baby Homes, Magdalene Laundries. Mm. You still see a lot of repression and control from the Catholic Church Absolutely. right up basically until mid-1990s. And it's only when you start to see the emergence of the internet. It's only when you start to see even the introduction of the euro coin, basically from 2000 onwards, that there's a complete change. It's almost like... I think, a... yeah, I'll beg to differ slightly. Oh, oh. Just in as much as I think it was starting mm-hmm. a bit before that. Mm-hmm. And I think what was happening in the 60s made a change. I think also in the 60s and to a certain degree in the early 70s, you had people who had lived abroad coming back. back, And that's changing the dynamic as well. I do agree that, you know, if you were to pin it down to certain things, I think Bishop Eamon Casey Mm -hmm. was the big. And also... For those who don't know who he is... He was the Bishop of Kerry, then the Bishop of Galway, who basically had an affair with an American woman and had a son, and they were living in the state. She came over here to work. They had an affair. She had a son. He was using diocesan funds to pay for the son. And this broke in the mid-90s. And the moral authority that the church had changed on that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
that was the changing point. Yeah. It the, was the hypocrisy that made people go, hang on here a second. Mm-hmm. I actually think you can backtrack it a bit to the 60s because two things changed fundamentally in the 60s. TK Whitaker's report. TK Whitaker. His report, so uh-huh. our economic policies yes. became outward yeah. for the first time ever. Uh-huh. And then the second thing was the introduction of TV? free education. Oh, okay. Yes, which was yeah. Dunno O'Malley. Yeah. 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 And that I, was I would I would agree. To second level. Yeah. Oh yes. It's been so it's been so incremental. Like <laughs> So people were at the point where they were outward looking enough, like yeah. global enough, but yeah. also educated enough mm-hmm. to say that's wrong. Yeah. Because that hypocrisy had been happening time and time and time yes. again. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the information wasn't being spread. Yeah. And people weren't digesting it. Yes. Um, this month as well, the 60th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's visit to Ireland. Mm-hmm. And mm. that has to be included as well. Because as Caitlin was saying, in the late 1950s, Sean Lamas, TJ Whitaker. You're bringing in the policy of foreign direct investment. As I said, we've no natural resources. So that change in economic policy brought a prosperity to Ireland that hadn't been there since probably Ever. the 12th century. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that's being quite honest. Yeah. Yeah. You also then have John F. Kennedy, this young, handsome Irish Catholic president of the United States. Mm-hmm the soft power of quote-unquote Irishness. Yes. yes. And how that wasn't a thing, actually, before. Before it was a hindrance. It was yeah. It was um, <clears throat> kind of a black mark against you, being yeah. Irish. Where this was the first time ever where it was actually... Yeah. I was listening to an interview mm. with Leo Varadkar, um, our current Taoiseach, Prime Minister, who is the first openly gay, openly gay Taoiseach of the country. And the discussion was about soft power. Mm. Ah. And Irish soft power. Yeah. And he flat out said that when they realised that they were not being listened to in Westminster by the British government, Mm -hmm. they went to the US so that the word would get back to Westminster. Mm. That's Irish soft power. Yeah. Yeah. And the US, but also now the EU. Yeah. Like Brexit. Yes. Prime yeah. example of that. So obviously it is Pride Month and we are currently celebrating the 30th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Ireland, which came into law on the 7th of July 1993 and was voted in on the 24th of June 1993. So in this span of 30 years, I think that we as a country have achieved a huge amount Absolutely. and that's something to definitely be proud of. But... Um, I suppose the reason that we're bringing this topic specifically to the podcast is to acknowledge that a huge amount of Irish diaspora Mm. would be part of the LGBTQ plus community. Mm. A lot of people before Mm -hmm. would have felt like they they couldn't be themselves here and Mm. so they would have left. For example, Frank Egan, there was an exhibition in Epic, Out in the World, Mm -hmm. celebrating the members of the Irish diaspora who were involved in the LGBTQ plus communities in different places. And at the exhibition, there were sticky notes and people could write little notes. Mm -hmm. And this particular person wrote a note saying that their uncle, Frank Egan, were part of the, they were known as the Brixton Fairies. And you can see the interview on Epic's YouTube website. 
But basically, Frank Egan was born in Galway, but left Galway when he was about 15, 16, mm. left school at 14, trained as a hairdresser, told his mother that he had a job interview with Vidal Sassoon in London, mm-hmm. which was apparently something not unusual to do. Mm. If you were heading to somewhere that was less repressive, you would say that you had an interview for a job and became part of the Railton Road community in Brixton, who were the Brixton Fairies, and they were also a theatre drama group. And there's a great photograph of the Pride Parade in 1980 in London of Frank Egan, and he's in um, wonderful hat and chiffon dress, Mm -hmm. but there's a whole load of police behind him in the photograph. Yeah. And this person just wrote the note saying, you know, I'm proud of my uncle, Frank Egan, Mm -hmm. and I'm fighting the cause as he did, basically. So they got in touch. So that was the late 1970s Mm -hmm. that he left Galway. And I think that that's something that we potentially haven't acknowledged yet within the podcast and I think is very important too is we're talking about Ireland right now and we're talking about the advances that we've made in Ireland about, you know, getting equality. But we absolutely have a diaspora that have a huge legacy beyond Ireland. And there's a huge amount of the Irish diaspora who are pivotal in fighting for those same rights Mm -hmm. across all the diaspora hubs, you know, across like the whole world. And, you know, I think that that's extremely important to acknowledge and thank and celebrate. Yes. While we're also celebrating the decriminalization here, Mm -hmm. you know, they fought for their rights. All around the world. All around the world. And then... Some people who were recent members of the diaspora, some people who recently emigrated from Ireland in 2015 when we had the referendum for gay marriage here in Ireland came home and came home so that they could vote here yeah. and vote in gay marriage. And they were the diaspora and they were absolutely essential to that law being passed. It was beautiful. Yeah. And it was the diaspora. There's people from yeah. all over the world coming home to vote at that time. Yeah. And, you know, that was obviously the recent diaspora. But like you say... There were people in the 70s. The discourse between Ireland and its diaspora on all of these issues has always been really strong. Mm-hmm. And you'd like to think that part of that is, you know, the quote unquote Irish spirit. <laughs> but it's, it's also what was brought to this Irish community when they became the diaspora. So, I yeah. Think, yeah, absolutely something to be proud of and thankful for. Absolutely. And, and I think that... Um... I mean, it, it, like, I felt like I could come home because of what Ireland has done, mm. you know, because of the steps it's taken. Otherwise, I would still be part of that diaspora, yeah. you know, and I think that there's a lot of people out there who actually see it as... So we talked about this a little bit, actually, uh, when we were chatting with the guys in the midst of plenty, mm. and it's about that unwanted displacement, Yeah, that feeling like you're not leaving by choice. Yeah. Mm. And that's a very strong feeling, Um that can make you have a very uh, a disconnect yeah it, it's it's a complicated relationship with your home i think when you feel like you're not wanted there mm-hmm. um like you can't be there mm. and i think that ireland doing this not only has kind of embraced its current population mm-hmm. i think it's also embraced the entire diaspora in that yeah. mo- in that movement absolutely that, Anyone that did have to leave, you know, you are still Irish. You are still welcome here. I'm living here. 
I returned home because I felt that acceptance that I had never felt before. Yeah. And I think that that's a powerful thing that a lot of people kind of maybe overlook because they're looking so much at the legality of these rights versus these rights. Whereas Ireland accepted the LGBTQ plus community in that movement. Yeah. By popular vote. Yeah. Yeah. And that is huge. That's absolutely That amazing. is so huge. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, and that can have a very um, real effect for a lot of people whose rights aren't impacted by it mm-hmm. because they're not living there. Yeah. But can finally feel like they can come home, home is home again. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and then and that ripples that out. That's then. No, but, but then it ripples out. You know, then it affects mm-hmm. these people's families. And yeah. I think that's amazing if you feel like your country is somewhere that you would be proud to identify with. Mm. Or your ancestors' country is somewhere you'd be proud to identify with. That's what we want, you know. Yeah. We want people to think of Ireland as somewhere that they can be proud to identify with. Because, yeah. like, I feel proud to be Irish. Mm. And I'm privileged that I have maybe less to think about when it comes to some of these issues in my personal life. But I'm glad to see Ireland embracing yeah. everyone and embracing our people. I just think it's amazing. It's the uh, Irish spirit. Well, yeah. it makes it a better country to live in. Totally. 100%. Totally. But also is changing the landscape of what it means to be Irish within Mm -hmm. Ireland currently. And that has a ripple effect throughout the diaspora as well. Like even with the immigration of people into Ireland. Yeah. You know, because we are a tolerant society. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. Um, You know, that's going to shift and change how and what Ireland looks like. and, And it just, it's still, it's the exact same thing that we talked about in the first episode with surnames mm-hmm. about how there's always this incoming, outgoing movement, mm-hmm. influx, just evolution of what it means to be Irish, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is like living history right now that we're yeah. witnessing is this change and this development into like a new iteration or a new... Well, even mm-hmm. within the, the community going back through history, and we mentioned Oscar Wilde briefly beforehand, but what about people like Tom McGinty, Graham Norton? You know, you've got Elizabeth O'Farrell and Julia Grahanu involved in the 1916 Rising, Kathleen Lynn and Madeleine French Mullen, who set up the first children's hospital in Dublin. Yeah. Roger Casement, his work in the Congo and then his work as a nationalist. And you can keep going back and keep going back. We were talking about James Barry. Mm-hmm ourselves earlier on Mm. today yeah this brings us i think to the point uh for us as family historians is the records and the archives Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and and the thing where sometimes you can only know which i i actually like and i don't know if this is just me being a bit nerdy but sometimes there is a point where you have to say we can't infer anything else Mm. this is all that we know and I like it with James Barry that we don't actually know what way yeah. they presented or what way they wanted to express themselves. And this mm. is just one of the many people, you know, from the LGBTQ community in Ireland's past who we don't have the language to talk about because we don't yeah. have their words necessarily all the time saying, I am this, I identify as this. Or even if we do, it doesn't necessarily match the terms we would use today. So, yeah you know I think we just just have to be a little bit careful about when we're talking about people from the past that we don't infer too much either way yeah well this is the this is the really interesting okay and I'm gonna nerd out here Go right I am a classicist by training I don't know if I've mentioned it before <laughs> <laughs> no really <laughs> and so for me um like obviously there are gaps in the records that we have of people in Ireland in history and 
there always will be because records are made of a certain person for a certain person. Mm -hmm. And so there was a complete silencing of or eradication of kind of non-conformative lifestyles within these record sets. And as a classicist, for me, something that's always essential is understanding the context of the terminology. And here's where it gets tricky is we can't retroactively fit our labels on these people that wouldn't have had them or understood them. Yeah. So it's hard because you want to reclaim the histories yeah. of the very obviously queer people who mm-hmm. lived outside of the heteronormative societies mm-hmm. that they're built into through yeah. these records. But at the same time, you have to respect that they wouldn't have had the same understanding of what a marriage was, what a gender identity or expression was, you know, what certain things meant, like sexuality, like mm-hmm. because yeah. they had a different understanding of what a woman was yeah. and is and yeah. could be be and what sex was yeah you know i know what you mean yeah like it's it's we can look back and say that's a gay couple that's a lesbian couple Mm. that person is queer that person is this or that you know most of the time we only know the the upper middle class i was saying so well elizabeth farrell and julia graham Mm -hmm. bought their grave Mm. together yeah yeah Yeah. so what does that tell us yeah i mean you know that's the sort of summations that i guess you're making yeah i think eva gorbuth and esther roper Mm -hmm. yeah very interesting had separate bedrooms lived in the same house but also like it was very common for married people to have separate bedrooms so that actually doesn't you know confirm or deny anything exactly exactly i think it's i think where it becomes so important for us and why there's such a crossover with us is because any queer people this isn't new Mm. and our whole job is to read records and to reconstruct the family story from these records yeah and queer people are in the records absolutely but we are missing so much of the story just by virtue of the way records were created. So, for example, I could read a record and I could say, um, okay, there's James Byrne, 46 years old, bachelor, quote unquote, you know, no children, uh, lives alone in this house and, you know, lives on a farm in Mayo, let's just say, for example. And I could read that. I could say, okay, I can see by the size of his house, he's, you know, lower income. I can see where he lives. It's a very isolated area. Mm-hmm. And I could read that as a family historian, genealogist, and go, oh, God, that's, you know, that's very sad. And look at this man by himself. And he must have been the second brother of the family. And he yeah. probably was the blah, blah, blah. Such a lonely life. Exactly. Whereas, now, we can't infer anything without knowing. But no. for all I know, that man never married because maybe he was queer. Maybe there was no marriage option available for him because he mm. had a male partner. Maybe X, Y, Z. And this is across the spectrum. You know, that's... Queer yeah. people aren't. But even... you also have plenty of people who would identify as queer now who married. Yeah. And had families. Absolutely. 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 And that doesn't mean that there were no queer people back yeah. then. And we just don't see it reflected in most mm. of our traditional records. Yeah. And it's only, unfortunately, most of the time when these people cross paths with the law in a negative way that we yeah. do see them. And even still, it can sometimes be very coded that we can't yeah. actually the further back you go in the records, unless you are kind of looking out for specific words, you might not even catch that these people are yeah. are queer because of what's written in the records. It's a tricky one. And it's so intangible as well. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that really like convolutes things. Because for example, in the 12th century? No, 12th mm-hmm. century. <laughs> um, many, many years ago. <laughs> 
you know, in a the, galaxy the, far, far away. <laughs> no copyright guy. You know, back in the day of the Gaelic kings. Yes. Right. Yeah. They had bards. A lot of them had bards, mm-hmm. and there's actually. You know, the argument could be made that a lot of the terminology, Mm -hmm. a lot of the references to actions, Mm -hmm. you could surmise that the bard shared the bed with the king. Mm -hmm. And it could be the case. Mm -hmm. Or it could be the literary trope of the time, Mm -hmm. how they expressed and wrote things as was standard. Sharing beds Mm -hmm. back then was actually a signifier of trust as opposed to sexual desire. Mm -hmm. And so it could say that this is a respected member of the court who I trust, or it could say this is my bedfellow who I have hanky-panky with. (laughs) And you don't know. And we don't know and we can't infer. And you have to always, always be careful that you are not putting the norms and conventions of today onto the past. 100%. But also... You don't take one person's actions Mm -hmm. as indicative of an entire society or culture. Absolutely. But the Romans refer to the Celtic barbarians as very handsy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) In the sense that the Romans had a different understanding of sexuality. Yeah. Again, you know. And their understanding of what sexuality and what was an acceptable practice within sexuality and the Celtic barbarians that they interacted with, Mm -hmm. apparently those acceptabilities differed and I think that this is very significant in highlighting that we have a very very specific idea of what we mean when we talk about these things and we talk about it in a binary in a gender binary of male female gay straight you know a lot of the time you're one or the other and it is that and it comes from the Greco-Roman European you know kind of modern society that we live in Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the case. Yeah. For many, many, many cultures yeah. across the world. Yeah. Celtic kings sometimes had a <laughs> manifestation through druids. Yeah. It was yeah. about the spiritual significance of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's been so much of that, like all across the world. You know, when you look at um, the ancient Americas and yeah. the way, uh, you know, what we would see now, if you wrote down their beliefs around gender and about sexuality and submitted it to the New Yorker or some, you know, a very modern magazine. These would be seen as extremely modern, very liberal views. Mm. And they're ancient, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And that's and it's it's a different culture to ours, but... Well, one of the most interesting speakers I found at the symposium that day was Amanula de Sande, mm-hmm. speaking about the culture in Pakistan. Yeah, one thing I thought that was amazing <clears throat> that um, Amanula said was talking about the literal words used in different languages not translating into the same meaning. Yes, so yes, it's, yeah. It's, it's a huge you know, thing. Yeah, because they were saying about how some words in, um, I can't remember if it was Urdu or which language it was, but mm. that they had words um, to express different queer identities and different, you know, just different words even surrounding um, expressions of love and sexuality that do not translate literally into English and the same with English back into Urdu and these other languages so that when we're having these discussions to label someone as something is actually impossible. And I think yeah. the language difference it can be the same as looking back in the past and seeing yes, how yes. things were labelled. And You just, yes, you just you can. cannot. Because the same, the exact same word mm-hmm. from now yeah. to then yeah. can change radically mm-hmm. in, Even, its, in its like I love the idea um, that the word queer has been reclaimed by the community. By the yeah. community. Mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because I still find now that I, I 
still feel nervous using the word queer because it was always a negative a connotation, negative connotation no. and it was used as a slur word yeah because i felt a bit uncomfortable with it at first as well but then i actually prefer to use it because i feel it's more fluid than really? other terms yeah there's more room in it and do you think that's partially because that then encompasses like people who are across the gender spectrum as well i think that queer embraces now in my understanding of yeah. the term and this is it like the understanding yeah. is is key to it is all. key and that's the context that we're talking about about the mm. same word can mean different things to different mm-hmm. people yeah and across different times like that's a pivotal thing you know marriage to a woman means something radically different now to 200 years ago yeah I'm researching at the moment the difference between marriages before and after the famine Mm. and it's absolutely amazing the difference because when nobody had land before the famine and when you only had a tiny parcel of land you were able to make actually more personal marriage decisions if you were poorer because it was Mm. like well nothing to lose nothing to gain whereas after the famine because there was such a loss of people and people had more land what used to be the poorer farming class now had less choices in partners, but the partners had more land. Mm, mm-hmm. So they were much more strategic. But actually, that's the time then when we see a lot more people emigrating, obviously, in the post-famine period. Mm-hmm. And it ties back in then to this discussion of, I wonder how many people in this time, because there were less marriage partners and because it was less, just marry off quickly and get out of the family house, we've no land to live on. Mm. How many people who maybe were on the queer spectrum were leaving because they were like, well, I don't have to marry my neighbour anymore because there aren't as many neighbours to go around. So it doesn't show up as a flag as much if I just I have the opportunity to leave. Yeah. And And I won't be seen as leaving for the wrong reasons. I'll just be seen as another person who's leaving Ireland because... A job offer. A job offer. This, like you said earlier, Fiona, because of job offering. Something I think that's really relevant to what we do every single day, and I think about this all the time, is with the structures of families changing with reforms in divorce laws and with gay marriage and with Mm. surrogacy and X, Y, Z, all of these different changes to, to family... The whole profession of genealogy is going to change profoundly. But I think as well, though, beyond that, like socially, like the amount of adults living with their parents because we're in a housing crisis right now. Absolutely. You know, it makes you think, actually, parents living with adult children or vice versa Mm -hmm. was quite common. Yeah. And, you know, how much of our expectation of what a family looks like now do we put on the The records? The nuclear family. Yeah. I think now so much of what we're... What we expect to see is based very much on, and this is from just working every day with the records, is based very much on what a family looked like from the interwar period. So from like the 1920s up until maybe the 1950s, maybe 50s, early 60s. And that one period had such a profound impact on how we see the structure of a family in the Western world and in Ireland specifically, that now when we have people who sit sit with me and they'll say, wow, gosh, you know, there's my great uncle and he's still 30 years old and he's living on the Irish farmhouse with his mom. God, maybe, God, he must have never married. Yeah. And you, you kind of have to say, well, you know, I'm nearly, like, I'm not married. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. this, this is a very common story now. And I think yeah. we, because we got so used to the nuclear family, just by virtue of it being everywhere, yeah. we can, again, put things on the records and that, also, yeah and also a very middle class understanding absolutely, of the nuclear yeah. family you know yeah absolutely i think it's just it's amazing what the records can and can't tell us mm. and it's our job obviously to try and read between the lines but 
there are so many stories that we just can never know. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, especially this Pride Month, it's just, it's important for us wherever we can highlight the queer stories of Ireland and of the Irish diaspora just to do it because when there are less stories to be told about a certain group of people it makes it even more important to tell the stories or else they get lost I think that what I want to take away I suppose from this conversation is that you know LGBTQ plus people have been here the whole time Mm -hmm. there just were no parameters for them to fit in to be seen yeah so now we finally have visibility Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that we have to you know still pretend that they didn't exist before Mm -hmm. um but we don't want to also we don't want to retroactively apply our current labels on people who had no understanding or knowledge of them absolutely yeah so i suppose within the family history remit, within the diaspora remit, Mm. how that would impact our understanding of Irishness Mm -hmm. would be a more open-minded look at record sets. Absolutely. Looking at the reasons for immigration Mm -hmm. and looking at people's Taking things with a pinch of salt. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, you know, changing our understanding of the labels spinster and bachelor, even if it's not in the queer context, just in the relationships don't always have to look the same context yeah absolutely that's correct yeah and i do think it is important as well to beyond acknowledging queer people in history Mm -hmm. i think it's extremely important to acknowledge the impact that the queer irish diaspora has had yes on ireland and globally yeah and just thank you thank you yeah and looking back i mean like as in looking at the diaspora and what they've brought back to us, I think, is amazing because yeah, yeah, it, it, all the influences that we've had through the media, from our own diaspora and from all over the world, from the queer community, has just been an absolute blessing on Ireland. You know, there was a whole generation of young people in Ireland who voted in two thousand and fifteen because of media and because yeah. of yes. mass information. Yes, and, yes, absolutely. You know, there's no more. That first gay kiss on TV meant something. Exactly, exactly. And the people fighting behind the scenes to get that on screen, yeah, they did yeah. something. Absolutely. They achieved something. Yeah, yeah. And it might seem small and insignificant, but it isn't. Yeah. And I suppose the only thing is, is you just to make sure that with every action comes a reaction. Mm-hmm. And we just have to make sure. Complacency um, is the enemy. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's the death of revolution, Woo-hoo. according to someone. <laughs> according to you. Yeah. Well, it's anymore. good that the love that dare not. Apparently, Oscar Wilde did not write that. Apparently, Bosey wrote that. Really? What, Boise. But he said Boise. that. He, he said that in Bosey. Bosey. He said that in his trial. He said it, but it's a line from a poem. Right. Apparently. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I just think let's keep moving forward and, you know, well done everyone for all the, the fighting that's been done in the past to bring Ireland to where we are today and let's keep fighting for, you know, all the people in the community who still have the fight to be fought for them. You know, I hope over the next 30 years we are even further on in the fight than we are right now. As I was saying earlier, I feel confident in the young people of Ireland of today mm. that they are going to move the country forward we have moved forward so much in the last 30 years and I can't see that not continuing 
Mm. And I would like to think that we are growing as a country, becoming more mature mm-hmm. as a country. The Irish people have always been good at assimilating people into the country from... Except the British. Huh? <laughs> Yeah, they made it a bit more difficult. And but they initially, didn't try and assimilate, they tried to occupy. Yeah, yeah. And I would hope that with the new Irish, and there was, I think, 4,000 became citizens. Woo-hoo. Yes, this week. This week? Woo-hoo. Yes, Woo-hoo. indeed. Welcome. And so we welcome them. I hope <laughs> there are members of the LGBTQ plus community in that 4,000. And mm. that they feel that they are made welcome here. Mm. Yeah. Here, here. I completely agree with um, both sentiments. I think the, uh, we've said it many times. There's really, truly no one way to be Irish. Ireland isn't just green, white and gold. It's all the colours of the rainbow, lads. Hey, <laughs> that's a good one. That's Damn a good one. That's a good one. Well, thank you everyone again for listening. And happy Pride. Happy Pride.